Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to Romans chapter 16 and reading for our text, verse 20. Verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Romans 16 verse 20. The Apostle Paul throughout the letter to the Romans covers methodically the vital doctrines of our most holy faith. When he comes to this last chapter, then he immediately is bringing in people, names, acknowledging those that have been his helpers, those that have worked with him, those that he commends for various reasons. And we are reminded that whatever doctrines are set forth, in the end, it comes down to individuals, the Lord's people, and what those doctrines, what that teaching means to them, means to us. And so may we be able to, from this chapter, draw that which is a personal help for us. Now what is upon my spirit is that constant opposition that many of the Lord's dear people have from Satan and from their own wicked and evil heart. It is that which very often discourages, wears them down, and maybe Satan says as well that if they were truly a child of God, they wouldn't have such things going on in their heart, such a hard work with it, and such a hard pathway before them. But we have an answer to that in the words of our text as the Apostle brings before us the God of peace and what he shall do shortly for his dear people and he commands all to be by the grace of God. So I want with the Lord's help this evening look at four points. Firstly, the God of peace. And then secondly, what he shall do for us. In our text it is, shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And then thirdly, how we are to walk waiting for him to appear for us. And we have that description in verse 19, because our text begins with an and. So it is setting before us firstly the path which we are to walk in before God will bruise Satan under us. Then we have the crown in the last point of all of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. But firstly, we have this title of our Lord, the God of Peace. Now, 
the apostle in his letters is the only one, only place we read in scripture of such a description of God as the God of peace. The first place that we read of it is in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 15. It closes with the words, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That is the first uh, time Paul mentions it. But prior to that, in the chapter here, he also uh, describes God in different ways. In verse 5, he describes him as the God of patience and consolation. And he says, grant you to be like-minded toward another according to Christ Jesus. Then we have in verse 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So the apostle is using this description to highlight aspects of our God that relate to the path that we are presently walking in. In other parts of scriptures, in the Psalms, we have our God spoken of as the God of salvation. And in other passages, well, uh, he is given titles that relate to what he is for the people of God. So when he writes then further to the Philippians, he says there, referring to the God of peace, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And then when he writes to the Thessalonians, he says to them in chapter 5, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the most beautiful uh, reference is reserved for Hebrews where we read in, in Hebrews 13 and verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And he goes on and he speaks of what the Lord Jesus Christ is to be for his dear people make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he uses these five times this title of the God of peace and especially in the reference in Hebrews it is joined to the bringing from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, John tells us in his epistles, is a propitiation, a wrath, ending sacrifice, bringing in peace. When our Lord was born, the 
angels herald at his birth to the shepherds by saying on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it is our Lord that says in the Gospel according to John, In me ye shall have peace, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so it is lifting up uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in his work as being coming from the God of peace, sent by the Father, obedient to the Father, and this triune God, Father, Son and Holy Ghost, is the peace of the people of God. No peace without God's provision, no peace without the sufferings and death and rising again of the Lord Jesus Christ, and no peace without the Holy Spirit to make these things known to us and to apply that peace to our hearts and to our minds. So this title uh, is belonging to the Lord. The Lord corrected the mistaken thought that he had come to send peace on the earth. He said, I am not come to send peace, but division. And that division where God calls one and not another, he says in John 17, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. And the very effect of those who are called out of nature's darkness and into his marvellous light and are separated unto the Lord who make their peace with God will find that Satan is their enemy, the world is their enemy and they have much conflict where once before they did not have conflict at all. And it's good for us to to, to realise this, this division. When we're speaking about peace, those that are dead in sin or those that are walking along in Satan's ways, they're at peace with the world, peace with Satan. There's no ruffle there, no difference there. They're not at peace with God, they're at war with God. But when the Lord comes and the Lord blesses his people, when he separates them unto himself, gives them his word, and works in their hearts, then it is that there is peace between their soul and God. There is that done by the Lord Jesus Christ which shall bring an eternal peace, but on the other side it brings conflict with the world, with Satan and with unbelievers. And we need to really remember that because as well as having tokens that we have peace with God, we also, we could say, have a negative token where we have conflict with Satan and conflict with the world and those that know not the Lord. Woe is me, woe are we, when all men speak well of us. The Lord says, well, so they did, of those false prophets that uh, were of old. And so the God of peace, it is not the thought that, well, if he is a God of peace, why doesn't he make there to be peace over all the earth, take away all of the conflict? That is not his will. That is not his purpose. This will is under the curse, is under the sentence of death. 
The Lord has his dear people in it and he brings them out of it spiritually and then brings them at last to be with him, to be in eternal peace and eternal happiness. But while we are here below, there will be this conflict. And this is why we have these things joined together in our text. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The God of peace and Satan, Satan, uh, instead of under our feet, in conflict, warring against us, this is why our attention is drawn to the God of peace. May we always remember that the peace the Lord has purchased for his people is by the purchase of his precious blood, is taking away the sentence against them. It is satisfying a broken law. It is fulfilling the law on their behalf. It is providing them a righteousness which is not of their own, but is imputed to them, so they stand faultless before the throne. God said there is no peace unto the wicked, but there is to the people of God, and he is their peace. He is our peace. And we have the uh, beautiful letter to uh, the Ephesians uh, that speaks of this. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2, now I'll read these verses from verse 13. And he's speaking in the first place between the Jews and the Gentiles, but it applies really to those that are called and those not yet called. For he is our peace, who hath, or in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. And it is preaching peace through Jesus Christ, peace through his precious blood. It is that which reconciles the sinner to God, it is that which reconciles Jew and Gentile, so making one fold and one shepherd. And this beautiful title then, is given to our God, our eternal God, the God of peace. May we truly know him under this title. I want to then look secondly at what he shall do for us. In our text it says that he shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we have recorded in Scripture what the God of heaven shall do for us? Not what we shall do for him. Not what we shall do by applying the word and 
ineffectively doing it ourselves, but the Lord doing it. The eternal God, by his power and by his might, doing it. This is very clearly set before us here. We have a living God, a true God, a God that is able to do exceeding more abundantly than we could ask or think. And a God who shall deal with Satan, that great arch enemy, one that is too mighty for us, too great for us. We read in the first promise, that the seed of the woman shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That was said to Satan, while man looked on and listened to that first promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the picture of our Lord's sufferings, of his death and all that he endured on Calvary's tree. Many men, they just looked at what Christ did. They looked at his sufferings. They looked at all he went through. But they couldn't see his triumph. They couldn't see the bruising of Satan's head. All they saw was his sufferings. And maybe you and I are like this. We look at our sufferings. We look at our life. We look at the things that we're going through. We look at that which we suffer of our fellow countrymen. We look at those things that we endure in this world and think, well, Satan has the advantage. He has his own way. We are the ones that are suffering. We are the ones that are bearing all of this. But when we think back to our Lord Jesus Christ, what was done at Calvary? Wasn't it the fulfilling of the promise that Satan's head would be bruised? Wasn't it that sins of all of God's people were put away there? Wasn't it that the wrath of God was appeased there? Wasn't it that the law was fulfilled there? Wasn't it that Satan was cast down? The Lamb of God was slain? God saw the blood and passes over his people? Many times the greatest conquests, the greatest blessings are those that are not seen with the natural eye. They are seen and believed by faith. And so it is with us in our lives as well. Outside may look so bleak. Many conflicts with Satan, many oppositions, many times that we have snares laid for our feet and fall in them. Many times our temptations beset us and we fall through them as well. Many times Satan will turn and accuse us. Many times he will resist us. As the apostles testified that Satan hindered me. And uh, Satan's actions are very real in the world. But we have here the Lord saying that there is something that he will do shortly. And again, this tells us something else, that there is a period of time when it appears the Lord is doing nothing, when the Lord is allowing Satan to have a free reign. We think of the book of Job and Job's life. The Lord didn't immediately intervene and prevent Satan from doing what he did to Job. In fact, the Lord gave him permission to do it, but save his life. And 
Job had to go through that long time of trial, not just from uh, the things that came in his life, the terrible disasters, you might say, and then the uh, illnesses in his own body, and then his own brethren misunderstanding him, and his own wife also speaking against him and proving to be an added temptation. But the Lord had a purpose, and there was a time that Job had to walk this path, and it seemed to be that Satan was in the ascendancy, and he could do what he liked, and he could bring Job right down to the ground. But that didn't always stay like that. There was a time that the Lord appeared, and the Lord delivered Job, and the latter end of Job was better than his beginning. The fiery trial that is to try you. We're told by Peter that we're not to think it a strange thing that has happened unto us, but rejoice inasmuch as we are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Peter himself knew that path. Satan hath desired to have you and to sift you as wheat, uh, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And Peter was brought through Satan's sieve and brought safely the other side of it. So there is this shortly, and this then is to be a word for those in Satan's grip at the moment, in temptation, in sorrow, in that really the first day, like with the Lord's sufferings and death, the disciples had to wait for the third day, a risen Saviour. There is a needs be for those trials, for the trial of faith, but then there's afterward, the Lord appears, and Satan is ended up to be really a servant of the Lord. We would remember how uh, Satan rose up against Israel, and that he provoked David to number Israel, and all that came on Israel, but the Lord overruled it, and used it, used it to show David where the temple was to be built, Solomon's temple. There was a time that Satan was to be bruised under feet. And this is the promise, this is what the Lord will do here. It's a beautiful promise, a promise of the Lord. A promise we might say, well, Satan sometimes tempts, well, what are these promises? Where are they? You think of the 4,000 years from the first promises of Christ to when the Christ, our Lord, came. All of those years. And then the accuser of the brethren cast down because our Lord came and the blood was shed. When the Lord promises... He will perform, but not at our time, often not straight away. Your time is always ready. My time is not yet. In Hebrews 11, we read of those that saw the promises afar off and embraced them and were persuaded of them. May this be a word to some battling soul, tempted soul, tried soul this evening. Tried you are, Satan seeming to be in the ascendancy, but shortly 
in the Lord's time and way, he will bruise Satan under your feet. He will deliver you from his hand, give you sweet peace and quietness, give you an exception from his rage, set a bar to him so that he cannot come near, he cannot annoy any more. And you know, we have those times just like our Lord, when our Lord was tempted of Satan 40 days and 40 nights. We read just to the last part of those temptations. But then we read that Satan leaveth him for a season. Our Lord knew other times, but on that occasion he left him. And we will know those times throughout our lives, not just once, those times that we go through these dark valleys when Satan is permitted to really oppose us in many ways. But then we have this this beautiful promise. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. There's a great last bruising. We think of death. We think of the conquest. We think of Stephen looking up and seeing our Lord in heaven. We think of the resurrection, the rising of the body. The empty tomb of our Lord gives assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. For those in heaven, for those ascended, Satan can no more annoy. He cannot touch them. The martyrs that uh, Satan stirred up, the uh, Roman Catholics to uh, condemn them to the flames. They could kill the body. The Lord said, Fear not them that kill the body. But after that there is no more they can do. But fear him, who after he hath killed, hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. But once the body is slain, that soul is released, and it returns to God that gave it. And those that know the Lord of peace here, in me you shall have peace, in the world you shall have tribulation. They shall have that eternal peace. So we have this is what the Lord will do, not what we will do, what the Lord will do for us. And what a message for everyone that labours under Satan's temptations, opposition and hatred to the word. But we have then a third point I want to bring from the end of our text, the lead up to it. This shortly, this this time that is to take place before the Lord appears, what are we to do? Apart from hoping in the Lord and waiting for him, what are we to do? How are we to walk? Well, that is set before us in verse 19. Let us read it as it is. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. So there are three things that are set before us that precedes this, that 
these things are set forth and then and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And the first is obedience. And it is an obedience that is a very open and obvious obedience. It is an outward obedience and no doubt springing from the heart but it is come abroad unto all men. Many had seen it. They'd noticed it. They'd seen the change. They'd seen the difference. How vital it is for us, however much Satan might be seeking to annoy us and tempt us, to seek by the grace of God, we'll come to that in a moment, to walk in obedience to the word of God. So our outward walk is without reproach. Remember it was with Daniel that when the princes sought to find something whereof they should accuse him, they could find nothing, nothing in his outward walk, only concerning that of his God the fact that he prayed so constantly to God. And what a witness that that is. Satan certainly will gain an advantage where the outward walk is inconsistent and where the world can see very clear and God's people to their grief can see where there's inconsistencies. And the hymn writer says, though the outside be kept clean, he feels the filth within. Don't let ever Satan tempt you and say, well, you've got so much filth and evil within, so much unbelief and you, you might as well just sin and just take no care outwardly at all. But there is a distinction here, dear friends. There is a distinction. There is a blessing on that obedience that results in a walk that before men is a godly and upright walk, obedient uh, to the faith, obedient to doctrines, obedient to ministers of the gospel, obedient to the ordinances of the house of God, walking in obedience to the word of God. Paul in uh, Romans chapter 6, he says, Know ye not that ye are Servants to whom ye obey, whether of sin or whether of righteousness. And so Paul sets before these dear Roman saints, he sets before them the path of obedience, even though they are beset with temptations and trials, the many things opposing them, they still go on in a path of obedience. The second thing that he brings before them is that they should be wise unto that which is good. There's another thing I might say here, that obviously Paul is looking upon them, seeing them as being obedient and right, but he has those in his view that cause divisions and offences. He says, beware of them, avoid them those things that are contrary to doctrine, uh, there are those that could easy draw them aside, easy deceive them. So his concern for them and this advice is that they should be wise unto that which is good. 
You know, that which is good, it needs wisdom, it needs understanding. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. It needs faith in the word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It needs good practice. It needs discernment. It needs the gospel and faith. And it needs these things to be taught. And we never think, well, we can just go on and, and really not know what we believe or why we believe it because it just leaves it open for those of contrary to, to come with their doctrine. Paul, he had to redress this with the Galatians. who had those that came telling them that except they were circumcised, they couldn't be saved. And he had to address that wrong doctrine, that wrong teaching. And so he says to them here that he would have them wise unto that which is good. In other words, think of the, the doctrines of the gospel, think of all of the blessings of the gospel, all that is set before you in a positive way. Make sure you know what you believe and why. You know, we're not to say, well, in order to be kept from evil, we need to know what the Mormons believe, what the Masonic Lodge believes, what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, what the Roman Catholics believe, what the Muslims believe. And you go on through all the religions of the world. No, the Lord says you're not to know all of those things. You know what you believe. You know the truth of God. You be wise unto that which is good, the good and the right way. And knowing that, then you've got a standard for everything that is not good and that is evil. And so he has the other side to this as well. And he says, and simple concerning evil. Now very often, in our own wicked, deceitful hearts, it will deceive ourselves, it will see something that is is evil and really would be evil in the eyes of those that saw it and it will complicate it and it will make it appear right. Someone might be walking in an ungodly way, an unscriptural way, and then they say, well, and they put such a spiritual slant on it as to making this wrong thing to be right. And because God has told them or given them the exercise, then it makes it right, supposedly in their eyes, really deceiving them own selves. But the Apostle says here, be simple concerning evil. If you take a look at it first, and that is evil, that is evil, you don't listen to elaborate arguments that suddenly will make it all right. Our deceitful hearts and the subtleness of Satan, they always try and say, well, it's not real. It's the same as like in the fall, isn't it? The Lord said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So Satan comes along and he says, you shall not surely die. The Lord knows that in the day that thou dost eat thereof, thou shalt be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so he 
makes them as it was concerning evil. The very direct thing of taking of that fruit to Adam and Eve, that was evil, it was wrong. But when Satan had finished with them, they looked upon it and that which began with evil suddenly began not so evil and they could do it. And this is what is warned here. Sometimes it is here, the simplest soul, or perhaps even in the eyes of a child. A child can look upon outwardly something that is being done or said and say, that is evil, that is wrong. But you find those that are older trying to excuse and argue away or reason away. The Lord said of those in his day, they made the word of God of none effect because of their tradition. And he said the word of God said that we are to honour our parents. But he said, you have said, that if a child says that you are benefited by what you profit from me, then you make him that he does not have to obey them. In other words, a trade-off and saying, well, I benefit you, as a parent, as, my, as a child, you have some benefit from me, therefore I don't have to obey you. And they made the word of God of none effect. They didn't really. But this is what the warning is here. When men, when Satan comes with arguments of what you've begun to see as evil, and then it gradually doesn't become as evil, it doesn't look so bad, Beware of that. That is the very thing that's being warned here. Any doctrines that are not of Christ, anything that is in any way dark, John in his epistles, he says, in him, that is in our God, there is no darkness at all. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. There's no hint of any deceit any cover-up, any lies, any shady business. No, it's all open and right before the Lord. And it's good that we walk in that way. Well, then we have a last point. And this is where the Apostle closes our text, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. It is all of grace. By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And all that he sets before them, their obedience, their wisdom, the faith that the God of peace should bruise Satan under them, all of these things are by the grace of God. The Apostle says that what I am, I am by the grace of God. And he sets this before the Romans here. This really is his signature, isn't it? Whenever he wrote, he always desired this for those that he wrote to. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The seal of the Lord upon it, that which is conveyed to poor, undeserving sinners, 
And you may come this evening and say, I'm not deserving of the least of the Lord's mercies. But I look at my life, I look at my failures, I look at my sins. This doesn't speak of works. It doesn't even say, well, you need to walk in obedience and have that wisdom unto that which is good and simple concerning evil as a condition for the God of peace to bruise Satan under your feet. No, there's not works. There's not you must do this and then this will happen. But there is direction, gracious direction as to how we are to walk when we are buffeted by Satan, when we're waiting for the Lord to appear, not to despair, but to continue thou, to run the race set before us looking unto Jesus. We are to remember we have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and to rely on this beautiful promise that acknowledges the battle, the conflict with Satan that the people of God have, but gives a sweet expectation and a promise. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.